Hey guys, it's Corey from Lean Green Dad Radio. If you are listening to this podcast right now, chances are you know someone that's living with autism in their lives. Now, the problem is you might not even know it. This disability is oftentimes invisible, which makes it hard for folks that might not have direct experience with it to understand. Well, in today's episode, we're going to take a small step towards fixing that. Today, we're talking to the founder of one of the top 10 nonprofits in the USA, as recognized by Microsoft. Their mission is simple, and if you take a few minutes out of your day to learn more about them, it'll be one giant step towards acceptance for those living with autism. This is episode 68 of Lean Green Dad Radio. Let's go. Hey everybody, welcome to Lean Green Dad Radio. Hey everybody, welcome to Lean Green Dad Radio. <laughs> From sunny Orlando, Florida, this is Lean Green Dad Radio, the podcast that provides fuel for families. And now, here's your host, Corey Warren. Hey everybody, how's it going? Welcome to the show. Welcome to Lean Green Dad Radio. If this is your first time hearing us, thank you so much for tuning in. Before we get started, I've got to say thank you to our sponsor, Smart Fitness. Now, if you're a busy parent like me and you don't have hours to spend on some overpriced gym membership, you've got to check them out. They are local here in Central Florida, where I am based out of, and they all they need is 20 minutes, 20 minutes twice a week, and you'll be in great shape. Andrew Noble runs Smart Fitness in Central Florida, and he will customize a plan that works great for you in his top-of-the-line studio here in Ocoee, Florida. So check him out online at gosmartfitness.com. All right, so hey, what's going on, folks? If it's your first time listening to the show, then hi, how are you? My name is Corey, and I am a husband, father of three and a plant-based athlete. And each week I get to talk to some of the most inspiring people that I can find to help me stay motivated, to stay fit, eat healthy, and really get the most out of a busy life as a parent. You know, for me, finding time to work out and make healthy quick meals for me and my family while spending quality time together can all be really difficult, especially when we overschedule ourselves. So my goal is to interview these awesome folks and hope that you take away some gold nuggets of information that you can use to help keep your family going strong. All right, so I mentioned that at the beginning, I'm going to be talking to uh, a pretty amazing person. His name is Dr. Julian Maha. He's the founder of one of the newest and uh, in just a few years, the best reviewed nonprofits in the United States, Culture City. Now, what does it mean to be best reviewed as a nonprofit? Well, it means that every dollar and every experience that Culture City raises or provides is tracked and directly related to the impact that they have on serving their mission. They've already been recognized by Bill Gates and Microsoft as one of the top 10 nonprofits in the nation, and they've impacted already 15,000 lives of those living with autism. Their mission is to help create a world where all individuals with autism and their families can be accepted and treated equally. Now that is straight from their website. I'm really excited for you to hear this podcast and challenge you to think for a little bit while you're listening to Julian speak. You know, what, what is the difference between sympathy and empathy? Which one do you have for those living with autism? 
Now, if you can empathize, uh, you can understand what someone with autism is going through, obviously, because you have direct experience with it. Now, if you can sympathize, then you can still feel strongly for that individual or family that's living with autism, but you might not have direct experience with it. That's kind of the category that I fall into. Now, whatever category you fall into with those two, it's important to feel at least one of those two towards a family or individual living with autism, as it's truly the best way to live a life of compassion and understanding. And it'll help organizations like Culture City be one step closer to a worldwide acceptance of this often invisible disability. All right, without further ado, here's my talk with Dr. Julian Maha, the founder of Culture City. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. Now, we have a wonderful show for you today. And on the line with me now, I have a hero among heroes. Uh, Upon his own son being diagnosed with autism, Dr. Julian Maha founded an organization called Culture City, whose mission is to help every child with autism work towards being accepted and treated equally. I am honored to have the founder and CEO of Culture City, Dr. Julian Maha, with me today. Welcome to the show, Julian. Hey, thanks so much, Corey. It's really an honor. I've been uh, following your blog and it's truly, truly amazing. I'm actually the one inspired by reading it. So thank you again for having me on. You are too kind. Well, you know, it's only been a couple short years. Uh, We'll talk about how you got started with Culture City. But in those couple years, you were named one of Microsoft's top 10 nonprofits in the USA. That's incredible. That is correct. Thank you. Yeah, that was... uh truly a huge honor for us. It was something that we were, we sincerely were not expecting, but it was very nice to uh, be named by them as a partner and one of the top 10 nonprofits in the US. Mm-mm-mm. And multiple awards. We'll get into those in just a few minutes. But, you know, I, I mentioned you started this because of your youngest son. And what was that situation? Oh, I'm sorry. It was your oldest son, actually. Correct. Yes, yes. So your, your son, who is now eight years old, um, what what was going on in your life at that time when you received that diagnosis? How, what was going on? Yeah, so it was about four years ago. And, you know, Abram, who's now eight, um, he, was an, he was pretty much a typical boy, except for the fact that he really did not talk. And we had taken him to get evaluated from, you know, language, speech, and all that. Everyone said that it was probably because you know, we were a multilingual family and if the speech would come later, even though he was four, then a couple of months before his diagnosis, we actually put him in daycare uh, for the very, very first time. And when we did that, um, we started seeing a couple of things come out that we were a little bit concerned about in terms of his behavior. You know, he got really, really upset going to class. He wasn't really fitting in, uh, had a lot of social anxiety and things like that. So at that point, we took him in again for an evaluation. And the issue came up was that, well, he doesn't have, you know, autism because he doesn't fit in your typical autism look. Because even in the medical community, when people talk about autism, they in general still equate Rain Man to autism. Right. So we started looking around the U.S. And then fortunately, we were able to get in to um, one of the best speech pathologists in the U.S. in Vanderbilt University. So we got a meeting for him there, and literally it was September 28th, 
and I remember it like yesterday. It was a long drive to Nashville, and autism was the furthest thing from our minds. So we waited for an appointment, you know, when we got there for about an hour and a half in a really small room. Within about five minutes, the doctor walks in, and he tells us, you know, looking at Abram for like, I would say maybe about a minute to two, he says, you know, your son has autism. Looking at him, he's very classical. I'm surprised that no one ever diagnosed him up to this point. He's probably severe on the scale. And looking at it, he'll probably never, ever talk or probably never, ever say, I love you. And looking at his behavior, you're probably looking at putting him in an institution mm. in about, you know, two to three years. That is shattering. That is heart shattering to hear something like that from a, a medical doctor. Exactly. I mean, it was, you know, the thing that we were not expecting. And it basically just crushed, you know, our hopes and dreams because Abram was our oldest. And, you know, when you have your oldest child, you, you almost kind of... Uh, live vicariously through them in a lot of ways mm -hmm. and you have all these hopes and dreams piled on to them and you expect them to do all these great things and then when someone tells you something like that it bursts what I like to call this bubble of security around you that a lot of us are kind of in right mm. now did, why did you have to go all the way to Nashville for that uh, diagnosis uh, because he could not be diagnosed in Birmingham. And that really is because of how, you know, like what I mentioned earlier about how autism is viewed right. by the medical community. They're still really not sure how to diagnose because it, it is a clinical diagnosis hmm. and you have to fit certain features. And for whatever reason, autism does not get a lot of, uh, it's not, you know, physicians are not given a lot of training in the world of autism. So when it becomes that way, they kind of put that notion on what, a movie like Rain Man would look like or something they've read. So if you don't fit that category, if the child doesn't fit that, then they probably don't have autism right. when it's actually not a true statement. And I think that most of this just comes out of, uh, you know, not being educated on exactly what autism is. And that that's one of the reasons I wanted to bring you on. It's just at a very basic level, uh, you know, I, I do not have any direct experience with autism in the sense that um, both of my my all three of my kids uh, so far um, are not on the spectrum that I know of. Although I do want to talk about that though, because I think that there is a, a, a on the spectrum for everyone. Like it's kind of like, where are you on the spectrum? And then if it's like, you know, uh, I feel like 30% is a number that I read somewhere. If there's more than or less than a 30% something, then they are diagnosed with, you know, either high functioning, low functioning autism. So I, Right. We'll get into that. I, I, I just want to make sure that this episode is a, an opportunity to bring not only awareness to autism itself, but also a deeper understanding for those who might not fully understand it. Uh, and and also, I want to make sure we talk about Culture City and how people can get involved, how they can you know donate and reach out to you. But I guess let's start off with you know the awareness piece and what I was talking about, about that spectrum thing we hear so much about. Yeah, sure thing. So, you know, when you look at autism, autism is, has been around for a while, but I think it never really fully came into national prominence, I would say, until about 2000. Mm -hmm. And initially when people were talking about autism, they always basically equated it with someone with a very, very special skill in a very narrow field. So going back to the Rain Man analogy, because that really was 
the first time that autism came into national prominence was with the movie Rain Man. Mm. So for a while, everyone thought that these are kids that, you know, might have a lot of problems functioning from a social perspective, but they're geniuses when it comes to a particular area. Um, so in 2000, what people started finding out was that it really is truly a spectrum from where you can have someone that is perfectly, you know, functional, doing great things, but have a lot of social insecurity. Someone like, for instance, uh, Mark Zuckerberg from Facebook has been taught to be on the autism spectrum. Mm. And then when you flip it, you have a child that, for instance, let's say it's the same age as Mark Zuckerberg, but potentially it's nonverbal, has a lot of issues with leaving the house, you know, might have some model issues and things like that. So that's the spectrum. So you have a child that is functional in the sense that they can, you know, interact with the community and things like that, but they have some social issues to a child that, you know, has difficulty interacting with the community because of some other health issues and also the fact that they're nonverbal. So these physical things, these physical manifestations, these things that we can obviously see, um, it, is that something that makes you think in your head, okay, something's, something's not wrong, but something's not right here. And that's when you say, okay, I'm going to take action as a parent and kind of dig a little deeper into this, maybe find a, a specialist in this area. Is that right? Exactly. That is correct. I mean, you know, the couple of things that you want to, you know, kind of watch for, especially when you have a new uh, a child that's about two to three years old, because that's really when all the features start coming into prominence. Is the first thing is lack of response to their name. Okay. Uh, so you know they almost seem like they're deaf. That's one of the biggest analogies. Most of these kids initially, before their autism is even thought about, they'll get a hearing test. Okay. Because they do not respond to their name. The second thing is that they tend to be very focused on specific objects that could be a toy, but it could be something that's not a toy. It could be potentially like a doorknob or a door or a window or something like that. Mm. And they don't play with toys typically. So, you know, like other kids play with toys, you know, and they can sort of story tell with their play th playing time. But with children with autism, um, you know, they don't play with toys in, in, the, you know, in the typical way. So, for instance, if you have a truck, a child who is playing with a truck, you know, might mimic the behavior of a truck on the road, right? Right. Uh, with a child with autism, what they might do is basically spin the wheels on the truck repeatedly. And that's the only thing they do. So hmm. that's their play, so to speak. Okay. Wow. Couple couple things to look out for there. I mean, you know, it's it's hard because there's so much in the media that has come out and has kind of clouded the whole vision of autism. And, you know, for a while there was... Um, you know, some celebrities coming out and saying that certain things were causing autism, but do we, we don't really know at this point, we're still in the infancy stages of identifying exactly what the cause is. Is that right? That is correct. I mean, we know that there is a genetic link to it, but we haven't been able to pinpoint a gene right now. It looks like a bucket of genes that could predispose you to it. But the issue is that... For instance, if you have the bucket of genes, it doesn't mean that you have autism. Right. Make sense? Mm -hmm. so, and that's the, that's the huge quandary. You know, what kind of activates the genes or whatever that causes autism? That's the biggest thing. No one really knows, uh, you know, a, a, as you mentioned earlier, you know, when initially came out, people thought that it could be medications, it could be this, it could be that. Right. The, the biggest thing right now is that it, it is the great unknown. Hmm. Now, 
you know, the the mission of Culture City there, I, I was reading on the website, is to have children that have been diagnosed to be accepted and treated equally. Now, how do we make that happen? How, how do we continue to work towards that and make it more than just, you know, uh, a logo that, you know, sportscasters wear on their lapels, which is still, again, extremely important. I love that the awareness is there, but um, an Aut- Autism Awareness Month, very important. But what can parents just like us do on a daily basis that can help be more inclusive and create inclusive environments for children with autism? I think the biggest thing is, you know, the easiest way I can answer that is with the story of what happened to Abram. So when Abram was about five, you know, we, we understood that he was already diagnosed with autism. We knew that he had a lot of sensory issues, meaning that noises bothered him. Things like a haircut was very traumatic for him because when the hair fell on him, we were told that it seemed like he was getting cut with, you know, paper cuts. Mm. So we had taken him for a haircut and, you know, my wife was there and he was getting his haircut and he was, you know, screaming, you know, bloody murder, essentially. Right. Um, you know, normally the, the, the hairstylist does a good job telling people around her that, hey, he has autism, that's why he acts like that. There was one lady that walked in during this time that did not hear that and immediate thing that she did, she was an older lady, was she walked up to my wife and basically started yelling at her for not being a good mom. Oh, no. So that would be a very prime example. So I think the key would be, you know, when you just strip it back and say awareness. Awareness, like you said, is great. But awareness always gives you an out. Mm. Acceptance does not. You know, if I tell you, you know, hey, your neighbor's house is burning down, Corey, that's awareness. But what takes it to... The next step is whether you decide to act on it and what you do with it. Right. That's the acceptance piece. So I think the biggest thing is really to educate the community that when you see a child that's having a tantrum or something, don't immediately assume that it's either because of bad parenting or it's a bad child. Because potentially that child could have some sensory issues, the child could have autism, he could have something else, and that could be leading up to what's going on. Right. So that's one. And and, and then I think the biggest other thing is to realize that, you know, everyone experiences things differently. I think collectively, as, you know, as part of the human race, you know, yes, there are a lot of similarities. But when you look at it, certain experiences make, are what makes us individuals. And we need to be very cognizant of that. Absolutely. You know, going back to talking about, you know, a public, a public setting or a public situation like that. When my son, who is now five, um, you know, has a tantrum in the middle of, let's say, the grocery store. That's typically where they happen. Um, and he is throwing himself on the floor and just screaming and yelling. Um, my job, I think, in that situation is to stay calm, right? Uh, because I'm the adult. <laughs> I am I'm the one that understands how to control their emotions. And my kid is still learning how to handle his emotions, how to process things in his little brain. And so it's my job to stay calm and cool. And so often I see parents that flip out. They just flip out on their kids. And I understand. I am telling you, I'm sure you've been there too. You are in this store and you were like, please, just please be quiet, you know? And right. it's almost like a switch flips in you that where you, you're on the borderline of parental insanity, you know? Exactly. So I, you add another level to that with the autism and how how is it different? How is it different than any other kid in the grocery store that's screaming and yelling and flipping out? What do you do to help calm them down? 
really is exactly what you said. You internally have to be calm. Mm. And I think, I think that's the biggest, you know, reason. I think when you look at autism in particular, it's always been this thing that, because the, it's called the invisible disability, because, you know, the kids look typical like any other kid. So I think when you are a parent and you haven't been really told much about autism, because from, even from the initial diagnosis standpoint, your kid goes into this meltdown, you feel the judgment and that causes you to react very hastily and, you know, number one, try to exit the building very quickly or get mad at your kids or, you know, or things like that. So I think that is the thing that can be changed by having the community understand and not really making them aware, but really educating them about what autism truly is. Because for a long time, you know, when you looked at autism, for lack of a better word, it has been always marketed as this horrible thing. Uh, I think there was an ad a couple of years ago that came out that said, you know, your child is autism, it will destroy your family, it destroys your finances, it destroys your marriages. Hmm. I think that's the, the narrative that we need to change. Yes, autism can be very difficult. There are, you know, some days that are just really, really bad. But at the same time, these kids are, are really no different from any other kids out there. You know, their wants, desires are the same. It's how they experience the environment. That's what makes them different. My wife and I, we're a team, and it's really 50-50. How do you work with your wife to ensure that, you know, Abram's getting everything that he needs to thrive? I think the biggest thing is to play up to our strengths. You know, you're not going to be able to do everything correctly, especially, you know, parenting in itself. You're not <laughs> never going to be able to do everything correctly, right? Of course. Yeah, so I think that the key with, with, with you know, parenting a child with autism is play to your strengths. Always know what you're good at. And if you're not good at it, that's perfectly fine because you can always rely on your your significant other to do, you know, to pick up your slack, so to speak. Absolutely. Yeah. And the key is always find time to be a couple in that situation because it can be very exhausting because sleep is one of the biggest things that kids with autism have significant difficulties with. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like Abram, for instance, went through about three years where he would wake up from two in the morning to about five, uh, really, really upset. Uh, and that can be a huge issue, you know, within the family. So my best advice is always play to your strengths and also know that you need time as a couple. Right. Yeah, date nights are big for us. We, right. You have to pay for a babysitter. You have to bite the bullet. You have to go out every now and then. I don't, I'm not going to say once a week because that's almost unrealistic. But, you know, at least at least once a month, I think we can pull that off, you know. Exactly. I'm, su- right. I'm surprising my wife coming up. We've got a secret date that she doesn't know about. I'm, I'm like, so excited about it. It's because when you have three kids, it's like, oh, man, I just <laughs> I'll pay anyone to take my kids for just a couple hours so I can go, you know, have a beer with my wife or something like that. You right, know? right. <laughs> Okay, make sure the blog comes out after this, after the, the, the date then. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, of course, of course. Um, okay, so how, you know, when, when, I, when I have my little dude, uh, you know, I take him out and we have daddy-son time. Uh, it's like man night sometimes I call it and I take him out and we like go to a movie or maybe we like go to dinner or something. It's that special one-on-one time that we have. Um, what, what do you get to do with Abram that he really loves that you guys can do together as father and son yeah so abram is very very athletic uh, i think it's a function of the diet that he ingests and also his 
his energy level. So he loves to rock climb. So that's what we do. Uh, I take him bouldering. He he's like Spider Man on on the boulders. It's pretty funny. No way. Yeah. So we have guys that are like you know twenty five year olds, whatever, and he's just you know letting them eat his dust in bouldering because wow. for him this goes. The issue is that he has no fear, which is a bad thing. Right. When it comes to bouldering, uh, so that's kind of what we've been teaching him to be really safe on it. But yeah, he will climb anything. Now, ex- explain bouldering to me because in Orlando we don't really have that many mountains, if any. <laughs> yeah, so it's basically free rock climbing. Uh, it means that you don't have ropes or anything like that. You just find the best natural way to go up this uh, the side of big boulders. Oh my gosh! Yeah, so we have this park in Birmingham, Alabama called Boulder Park, which is filled with tons of natural boulders. Okay. That's where we normally hang out. Wow. It's, it sounds yep. like an insurance nightmare, though. The, yeah, tell me about it. <laughs> and then the other thing he really likes to do is anything that's related to walking by bodies of water. He just really likes water. Awesome. And it's very calming for him. Yeah. Uh, you know, he loves to swim. I, unfortunately, do not swim. Okay. <laughs> but that's, so that's my wife's thing. Yeah. I... Uh, I didn't yeah. swim before I did, uh, I mean, I, I knew how to swim, but I didn't enjoy, you know, swimming or have any kind of form before I did my race. And uh, then I was thrown into an ocean to swim for two miles with 3,000 other people. And that was, you know, as you could probably imagine, a, just an absolute nightmare. <laughs> wow. You can't even see the bottom of the, the ocean there. But that, that's cool. So your wife, your wife does the swimming then? Correct. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so tell me about Culture City. I need to know more about this organization and how we can get our listeners involved, donating, volunteering. How do we help? Yeah, so Culture City, we're a pretty new organization. We've only been around for about two years. But there's a couple of things that made us different, that, and that's kind of what got Microsoft's attention, is when I started Culture City, you know, I really felt that it was an opportunity to really let impact drive the mission. Because normally when you start a nonprofit, you have this great idea and then pretty soon you realize, wow, I got a fundraise for it. And then pretty soon the fundraising is what drives your mission. So your mission is to find funding every year, right. not to find people you can help. Hmm. So I wanted to negate that by applying what I call a startup model to the nonprofit. So I got together a group of my friends and I said, would you be willing to commit X amount of dollars over a five-year period um, so that we can really fund you know, what we wanted to do with it? And they agreed. So we have like a set funding for the next five years. And anything we raise helps us just do more. That's incredible. Incredible. Yeah, so it's a really nice thing to have because every year we know exactly what our impact is. And the other thing we did was we made it in our bylaws that no one could be salaried for the, for the first five years. Wow. So everything that's donated goes directly to the families. You know, we operate at about a 4% overhead right now. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, which is very, very neat. So that's the nice thing. And then the other thing, too, is we wanted to kind of think of fundraising in a more innovative way. Mm-hmm. Uh, one that really empowered not only the donor but the recipient. Because traditional fundraising is what I like to call a vertical model, where you have someone who has the means and they donate to someone that doesn't have means. And the person that's on the receiving end, they do not feel empowered by it by any way. Hmm. And the person giving has no natural connection to the person receiving. Right. So there's almost this break in the chain. So we said, what if we made it horizontal? What if we said, if you're donating to Culture City, you have to be participating in our community. 
So you have to come out for our events, you know, be engaged on our Facebook groups, our social media, things like that. For the families receiving, it's just not about receiving one thing. For instance, if they get a, a tablet computer from us, we'll connect with them and say, hey, was it effective? What apps work? What can we do better? Do you have any suggestions? So when we started doing that, the families wanted to really interconnect with what we're doing. So they became ambassadors in the towns and cities that they lived in, which was a really, really phenomenal thing. So we started creating almost this grassroots movement. And by creating that, that allowed us to then go to big corporations and say, hey, would you consider supporting Culture City um, if we were to promote a product that you have that is beneficial to the special needs community? Mm. And that's another source of funding that we have. So those are the different things that really brought us to national recognition. And uh, it's also the fact that we can track every single dollar that's donated to us to what impact it provides to that family. Oh, the, the impact is so very important. I mean, this this stuff, Julian, is blowing my mind. I mean, I, I worked as a development director for a local nonprofit here in the Central Florida area, and it was an honor to work with them, and I have, you know, just learned so much uh, in my years as a development director, but these ideas that you have are so innovative and so cutting edge, and it... it the fundraising model needs to be blown up and it it has to be changed because we've been doing it the same for what a decade if not you know more and um i i believe over the the span of you know the donations in that time the the general donations haven't increased no they've not they've they've stayed relatively the same yet our lifestyles have gotten better we've made more money and yet that percentage of our income that we're donating is, is remaining the same. So something's got to change. We've got to get people involved more. And to do that, we really have to understand, you know, why people give. Um, what, what is, is it, is it for that euphoric feeling that you get when you help someone? But, or, or is it, you know, not properly displaying the impact and properly displaying the return on that investment, you know, if you will, for, for the donor. And so what you're talking about, I just... It's not really a question. It's just a wow. I mean, it's it's clearly obvious why you guys were recognized by Microsoft and why you will continue to thrive as one of the best nonprofits in the nation. Oh, thank you. And and it's tricky too because you know when you look at kind of digressing into the nonprofit sector for a minute. You know, when you look at nonprofits traditionally, you know, you have nonprofits that serve the U.S. and you have nonprofits that serve outside the U.S. Correct? Right. When you're in a nonprofit that serves the U.S., you run into two quandaries. Um, you know, and primarily in the special needs nonprofit, is that when you look at, for instance, websites, correct? Mm -hmm. If you are a water nonprofit or a homeless nonprofit, the population that you serve will never get on your website. <laughs> you know, what I mean, they're never right. going to get on and say, "Oh, hey, how do I do this or do that?" Right? You know, they, they're not. So the websites are mainly geared towards the donor. So you can be, for lack of a better word, as emotionally manipulative as you want. Mm -hmm in order to drive donations. But when you're talking about like for us, you know, we very quickly understood that we needed to put, you know, uh, a lot of resources and things like that. And that's kind of what we're building right now as we've gotten bigger. So we're building a very extensive resource page that's going to be launching in the next couple of weeks. Uh, because, you know, for us, the people that we serve are going to get on for information. And then at the same time, we also need to engage the community at large that doesn't know about autism so that they'll want to participate 
and and you know and be more educated about that as well. So it's that fine balance. Right. And then when you look at special needs nonprofits as well, they tend to almost cannibalize the population they serve by fundraising within that population. But these are the people you're helping. And I always feel it's kind of disingenuous to reach out to them unless they actually reach out to you that they want to reciprocate because they are hurting. They're the community that you're serving. It's kind of like, you know, if you were homeless and you started a homeless nonprofit and then you fundraise from other homeless people around you. Right. Oh, that just makes sense, right? You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's something I think that, you know, we need to change. But you're absolutely right. The nonprofit model is ripe for innovation. How do donors uh, like me who are maybe from the Southeast but not able to you know, participate in events that are in Birmingham and stuff like that, how do I get involved if, if we were to do a you know, um, philanthropic gift, but then in addition to that, wanted to help you know, serve the mission by actually being there like you, you require of many of your donors? Yeah, I think a couple ways. I think one would be to see if we can do events where you're at. Uh, you know, we have done events throughout the U.S., not only in Birmingham. And it's basically like kind of like individuals like yourself that say, hey, I want to do an event that benefits the special needs population in our town. So we'll come, we'll help you, we'll, we'll fund it. And, you know, your only responsibility is getting the word out. So it's things like that. So we've done a ton of events like that that have been pretty successful. Uh, and then the other thing, too, is that um, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Tiki Baba from the NFL. Of course, yeah. So he's on our board and he and my wife are running buddy. And they came up with this idea that might actually pique your interest. So what they want to do is run uh, 2,016 miles in 2016. Okay. And for every mile they run, they want to pledge a buck to uh, $1 to Culture City. Nice. Yeah, so that's something that, that might be potentially cool for your community or your friends if they wanted to get involved. <laughs> Absolutely, I love it. Well, we'll make sure, is there information on that? Can I have it on yeah. the uh, the show I notes? Send you, yeah, I will send you a link for that. Uh, the, the page is being built. They kind of came up with the idea about two weeks ago, so it should be live in about uh, one to two weeks. I love it. All right, well, we'll make sure to have that in the show notes, including everything else that we talked about here. And uh, obviously, uh, we can find Culture City online. Uh, do you have your social networks? Where, yeah. where can we find you guys? Yeah, definitely. So on our website, it's culturecity.org. So culture with a K. So K-U-L-T-U-R-E-C-I-T-Y dot O-R-G. Uh, Twitter, our handle is culture with culture C. Instagram is also culture C. And Facebook is culture city. Nice. Love it. Well, Julian, I cannot thank you enough for taking the time to talk with us. Keep on doing great things. I'm sure that in a couple of years we'll be talking again and you'll be being recognized by the president or something like that. Who knows? Oh, no, you see. But no, seriously, thank you so much for having me. It's truly been my honor. And keep up your amazing work that you're doing because uh, your blog is really essential. Hey guys, Corey here back in the studio. Thank you so much for taking a minute to make it through another episode of Lean Green Dad Radio. But hey, don't let your experience stop here. Visit us online at leangreendad.com. You can also follow us on social media uh, at Lean Green Dad on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Pinterest. We've even got a YouTube channel for you. So make sure you go check all those out. And uh, hey, listen, I hope you have a wonderful week. I cannot thank you enough for taking a second to listen to the podcast. I I had a blast interviewing our guest and uh, hope you did too. So we'll see you next time. Every Wednesday, we've got a brand new episode coming out. Make sure you subscribe to our uh, iTunes 
podcast by clicking the subscribe button. And hey, you know what? Leave us a review if you have time. That would be awesome. Until next time, my friends, hope you keep your family going strong and keep going that extra mile for your family. This is Lean Green Dad saying see you next week. Bye, guys.